This is Fifth in Mission. I'm Dominic Fracasa. Tens of thousands of workers throughout the University of California system are on strike in what's been called the largest labor action in American higher education. When they walked off the job, something remarkable happened. Workers of all stripes stopped to lend their support to the researchers, graduate student instructors, and postdocs who were seeking better pay and working conditions. Nurses and service workers joined picket lines. Carpenters working on UC projects laid down their tools. And UPS drivers stopped making deliveries to research facilities, all in a show of solidarity with university workers. For a strike already historic in its own right, the uncommonly big tent that laborers created has the potential to reshape public perception of what it means to be working class. That's according to freelance journalist and former Chronicle staff writer Ryan Cost, who's written about the UC strike, and he joins me now. Hi, Ryan. Hi, thanks for having me. So I want to talk about some of the implications of this broader solidarity you witnessed and wrote about. But maybe we can start by talking about just the sheer magnitude of this UC strike. The size and the scope of this has really been noteworthy in and of itself, has it not? Yeah, it really has. We're talking about 48,000 people who walked off their job and out for four weeks so far. And that means, you know, that really important research is not being done. I talked to one cancer researcher who said that they had to leave behind some of their research temporarily. Students aren't getting their papers graded. I know professors are sort of grappling with how to, you know, give people grades at the end of the semester. So yeah, it's really it's really impacted a lot of, you know, the day-to-day at the UC campuses. Did this sort of cross-pollination of workers, if you will, did it happen spontaneously or uh, what gave rise to this kind of wide show of support that we've seen? The strike specifically at the UC campuses, it's composed of four different bargaining units. So you have, for instance, postdoctoral researchers, you have TAs who generally are doing the grading and sometimes teaching classes. Now, they all just happen to be able to get to a point where all of the four units' contracts were up, or in the case of Student Research Union, they're bargaining their first contract. And they basically decided that they would all walk together. They tried to get the university to let them bargain at the same table. The university declined. But yeah, this is something that unions typically do, right? Solidarity is a huge tool that unions use. So it's not unusual exactly for units to try to work with one another. But, you know, the fact that they were able to organize four units across nine different campuses, I mean, even veteran union organizers were impressed by what they were able to pull off. So when you have this situation where nurses and UPS drivers are seemingly, if you will, joining in the fight. What effect did that have on the UC workers who were already striking? I spoke with UC workers and I spoke with professors in the UC system who have studied labor history. And I think it's important to remember, you know, strikes used to happen a lot. They were a pretty big part of American life for for many decades. But a lot of people who have grown up in you know, recent generations probably just aren't used to them quite to the extent that other people were. So you have these people who are striking for the first time. And not only that, but they're sort of seeing that these these other unions that have traditionally been unionized that sort of know this game plan are now on their side. So UPS drivers aren't crossing the picket lines. Carpenters are laying down their hammers. Nurses are spending their lunch breaks out there. And I think it's sort of giving, you know, these 48,000 people an idea of what solidarity really means and sort of 
you know, what a working class looks like when it gets together and cooperates with one another. Am I reaching too far to say that what we are seeing is at least in part, a sort of a, a breakdown between the barriers, perceptual barriers even, that have existed between, you know, quote unquote, blue and white collar workers? I mean, I think there certainly is. You know, I spoke with one professor and he starts his sort of labor class with a with a pretty simple exercise. He asked the students to, you know, sort of imagine what they think a worker looks like. And then he has them go to Google and Google the word worker. You only see hard hats, basically. And, you know, you might see a few people of color, you might see some women, but sort of this this perception of what it means to be a worker, at least, you know, in these Google search returns, it, it's, it's pretty specific and it, it hasn't really kept up with what actually, you know, a working class is. When we're talking about these academic workers, they're not making a ton of money. You know, they might be doing these advanced studies, getting these advanced degrees, but they don't pull in, you know, a huge amount of income. So when you're talking about a working class, you know, you might be talking more sort of about, you know, an actual class rather than the different types of jobs that they do. So all of a sudden, people who at least perceptually were segmented are all of a sudden kind of in this one, this one group together sort of rowing in the same direction. Exactly. You know, I talked to one person who was a former UPS driver And he said that he saw these academic workers as sort of the future of unions. You know, they are sort of the new frontier for labor organizing. So I do think that there is a chance, especially in the minds of those who are out on these front lines, that they're sort of getting a different idea of what it means to be working class or or what that, yeah, exactly what that means. Well, stay with us. We'll take a quick break and we'll come right back to talk more with writer Ryan Cost after this. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Ryan, you sort of uh, touched on this a moment ago, but I'm curious about whether this UC strike has done anything to provide a window into the working conditions that academics face. Again, when we talk about perception, there's this, you know, image you have in your head of somebody, you know, going to college for many years, pursuing an advanced degree, you know, maybe en route to a high salary as a result. But the reality as as these stories have come out as a result of the strike, the reality is very different for a lot of students. Is that, isn't that right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Even postdoctoral scholars, I think folks would be somewhat surprised at what they bring in. I think that when we're talking about wages, a lot of the conversation is focused specifically on sort of teaching assistants. The people who really do make these universities run to some extent, they make, you know, on average, according to the unions, less than $25,000 a year. They sometimes spend at least half of that on their housing. You know, California's famously expensive rental market. So it really is a matter of a living wage. And I think that people are maybe sort of starting to realize that as some of these stories get told. So, Ryan, I want to zoom out of the picture a little bit. I I wonder how does this, everything that we've been talking about with the UC strike and some of the broader implications, 
How does it fit into the conversation about the direction of organized labor in the U.S. at this moment? As you wrote in your piece, you know, this year we saw, you know, very widely publicized concerted attempts by employees, not always successful attempts, but attempts to to form unions at places like Starbucks and at Amazon. What are those folks taking away from this, from the UC strike? Well, I think the UC strike has certainly worked as an inspiration for folks working at other universities and other places of higher education. We know, for instance, Columbia University was on strike last year. This year, we have some strikes or some job walk-offs happening at the new school in New York as well. There have been you know, other actions in other universities across the nation. And I think that part of that is this growing recognition that Whereas some of our largest industries used to maybe be car manufacturing, our large industries right now are sort of in this knowledge economy. We attract students internationally. Our universities are still considered, you know, top tier, top in the world. And not only that, but, you know, particularly with the UC campuses, they drive a lot of research. They have huge medical centers. So we're talking about not just advanced degrees, but we're really talking about huge sectors of employment. And I think that there's a growing recognition that that's a possible path forward for for union growth and also union representation. Well, in, in closing, Ryan, I want to get the latest from you on the current status of the UC strike. As you mentioned earlier, there are a lot of moving parts, a lot of different sort of labor teams involved here representing different specific discrete constituents. I want to know, has any of this labor unity that we've been talking about proven to be effective when it comes to the UC workers actually getting what they want? Yes. So we got an announcement last Friday that basically the postdoctoral researchers and the academic researchers, they had uh, voted to approve a new contract with the university for the postdoctoral scholars in particular. That would mean a 20% raise next year. And then after that, I think it's 3.5% annually. So that basically peels off a part of this coalition that we've been discussing. It it means that 12,000 workers are now no longer able to strike. They have a a no-strike clause in their new contract. I did ask, you know, some of the people who are still on strike what that means for the effort. And From what I heard, it wasn't as though they felt betrayed or anything. I know that there had been efforts initially to sort of bargain collectively with the university that the university did not accept. It sounds like they're happy that they were able to get a good contract or at least a contract that they, you know, overwhelmingly voted for. And I also talked to a postdoctoral researcher who said that she was working on a handout, a list of things that they could still do to support the people who were still on the line. So it does sound like that solidarity is still there. I think it's also important to note that postdoctoral scholars had been working on their contract for over a year. So they'd been at it the longest. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for your reporting on this. And thanks for spending time with me today. No, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Ryan Cost for speaking with me today, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. For Fifth Admission, I'm Dominic Fracasso.